When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. Today we have, I think, seven questions. You'll notice that the first question is incredibly long. There are a lot of add-ons. There's a lot to get to. So we're only doing seven total just because I think the first one will take us like 20 minutes. And if you're new here, welcome to the community. I'm a licensed therapist and I answer mental health questions here as well as over on my primary uh, YouTube channel, Katie Morton. Um, I've been doing it for about 12 years. And if you're looking for another way to get your questions answered, if you've been asking them every week and you're like, dang it, why isn't mine getting picked? I'm doing my best to pick as many as possible, but I also answer questions over on my Patreon page. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton and you can check it out there. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into this first question because like I said, it's a big one. Now, I think there are like seven add-ons to this, but the first question says, hey, Katie, howdy do? Howdy do? Says, I hope you're well. My question is this, how do I come to terms with never actually knowing if I was sexually abused? I seem to have all the signs, extremely scared of sex, body memories, don't like being touched, hypervigilance, etc. But I have no solid memory of an actual incident. I discussed the possibility of past sexual abuse with my therapist, and she said that based on my symptoms and what we've been discussing, that she is treating me as if I had sexual abuse in my past. My brain is having a hard time with this, since there's no memory. I'm not sure if I'm in denial, but I can't accept the idea. What if I never know for sure? I can't ask anyone in my family due to other issues. Thanks for answering my question. Of course, and this is a great question, obviously. Very popular. Tons of people had add-ons and thoughts that they you know, felt like they needed to share. So unfortunately, due to dissociation and the way that our our brain works to keep us alive, right? It, it pulls us out from reality so that we can weather the storm. Because of that, and even sometimes because of the age of the incident, uh, for a lot of people, we don't realize that you don't form long-term memory until around the age of five. Now, some people will have like a couple of memories here and there of you know, prior to being five years old, but it's usually around that age when we have some of these longer term memories that we can tap into. So if we were abused before the age of five, we won't have memory of it. Or if we were dissociated, which is incredibly common when we're traumatized, we may not have memory of it either. And so what do we do? Now, like your therapist, I would say something similar, like based on your symptoms, I'm, I'm treating you as if this is what happened. 
you know, without the memory, it doesn't really matter, right? The symptoms kind of tell us the story anyways, and that's how we can work on it because the symptoms are what's going to bug us. Like hypervigilance is incredibly uncomfortable. The fact that you said you're extremely scared of sex could affect your relationships in the future. And if you're wanting to have an intimate one, you're like, I don't know, I can never imagine that, you know, happening. So there's a lot of symptoms that are bothersome and your therapist is doing a great job. Now, how do we come to terms with actually knowing if we were sexually abused. Unfortunately, it's going to take a lot of internal work yourself. Now, here's what I would recommend. And if anybody has anything else that's worked for them, please, please feel free to share it. But I find that, I mean, there are even, sorry, side note real quick. Sometimes there are other types of therapy that can help help us uh, either recall some some of the memories or move them through our bodies which can be in its way in its own way kind of validating and affirming like things like somatic experiencing or sometimes even EMDR will recall things that we thought we didn't remember um so that might be another potential way to try to recall those memories but let's just say we don't have them because sometimes they're not even formed because we're too young or we're dissociated and a lot of it has to do, and even if we have memories, people struggle with this too. A lot of it has to do with accepting that kind of diagnosis or that something like that happened. And I would encourage you to really start changing the way that you speak about your symptoms and starting to use the real term. Now, I know this takes time and some of you just cringe, but when we think about like, you know, when you find yourself having a body memory and you're like, oh, it's so uncomfortable. In your head, I want you to start practicing saying, that's because I was traumatized. I don't remember it, but I'm ha- I have the symptoms of it. That's one of those symptoms. And just acknowledging them for yourself. Because the problem with the acceptance is the fact that we even minimize and invalidate memories that we have. We invalidate trauma in general. So the fact that we don't have other memories is going to make it even harder. But that doesn't mean that we can't still validate our experience when it's happening. Does that make sense? I know that may sound weird. You might be like, I don't understand how that's really going to help it. A lot of this is self-talk related because you're telling yourself when you go, you know, trying to rack your brain to remember something, you're like, well, I don't remember because, and then another voice is like, well, because it didn't happen, right? We have kind of that shit talking voice inside our head that wants to minimize or invalidate, like it wasn't that bad. You're just, I don't even know why you have these symptoms. You're just making it up, right? We can have all of this nasty talk. And I want you to notice that. And I want you to check your facts with the symptoms to say, no, I don't like being scared of sex. I don't like the body memories. They're uncomfortable. I don't like that I'm hypervigilant and that I can't accept physical touch from people. All of that makes my life really hard. Why would I make that up, right? We have to kind of argue back and we have to challenge it by utilizing the actual term saying like, I have symptoms of abuse or I have symptoms of trauma and slowly work to a place where after admitting that we have those symptoms and that's what we're really struggling with, then after time, we can say, you know, I was abused. This is what happened. And it's 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 going to take some time. It's going to take some repetitive conversations with ourselves, the language that we use, checking our facts, challenging those negative thoughts. Like your therapist doesn't gain anything from telling you that they believe you have sexual abuse in your past and they're treating you as such. Why would they do that, right? Again, we're going to check some of those facts. So my tips are this, just because I feel like I've kind of talked around them. Number one, 
I want you to start using those terms, at least in your head of, you know, trauma or abuse or what happened to me was abusive or that's why I have these symptoms. I have PTSD. Wherever you can start in there, I encourage you to start using that language internally, if not externally. Okay. Then we need to check our facts. So when that negative talk tries to tell us we're making it up or we're, um, we don't even have any memory, how do we even know? We have to argue back by saying, why would I make myself feel this way? Why would my therapist, what do they benefit from saying this, right? Check those facts. And then the third is to give yourself the time to come around to it and to challenge, right? So we have like, we have to challenge the negative self-talk that comes up, not just by checking facts, but by by using some bridge statements and, and kind of talking back to it so that it doesn't say like, you're just making it up. You know, we have to challenge it with some some statements like, you know, I'm open to the belief that maybe due to the stress of trauma, I didn't form this memory. I'm open to thinking maybe that's possibly what happened to me, right? Just starting to slowly accept it, starting to try to move into a better direction. I know we always think like, I just need to accept this. I just need this to happen. I don't have any memories, but I need it. You know, it's just gonna, why am I having such a hard time? Because it's hard. It's hard for my patients who have full memory. We always wanna minimize and invalidate. So we have to challenge that a little bit, okay? So just keep those things in mind. I hope at least part of it was helpful or one of those things is something that you can utilize and it can help you slowly come around to this. Be patient with yourself. What you're going through is hard and that minimization and validation urge is is so strong. We have that's why we have to, you know, slowly kind of challenge it with like our checking facts and talking back to it and starting to use the real terms. So give yourself some time to come around to it. And I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Okay? And um, oh, moving on to comments. We have a ton of add-ons. I was just checking to make sure I answered all their questions. And this one says, as an add-on, I don't have any memories of getting sexually abused as a child. But when the question, were you sexually abused as a child, came up in therapy, my answer was an immediate no, instead of I don't know. The reason why I don't know and the reason why the question came up in the first place is because I have never felt like my body is mine. Hmm. Growing up, my mom, ugh, I hate calling her this. Um, would always critique me and my body in particular. I was too brown. I was too hairy. I was too fat. My boobs are too big. My belly too big, et cetera, et cetera. There was always something wrong with my body. I'm so sorry. And she would never shy away from telling me how disgusting I was, even in front of other people. Wow. Talk about emotional abuse. And also your mom must have a ton of her own issues. My body also seems to remember things that I can't. Now for my question, is sexual abuse of children always done with the intent of pleasure for the abuser or could it be done more as a punishment for the child? It can be done either way. I can't imagine my mother sexually abusing me for her own pleasure, but I 100% wouldn't put it past her to have abused me sexually as a way of punishing me. For obvious reasons, I'm scared to go down the route of trying to remember if she did sexually abuse me. She was and still is a very abusive and manipulative parent. And I endured severe emotional neglect and physical and psychological abuse all throughout my childhood. I am so sorry that you had to deal with that. And that, I mean, first of all, her telling you you're too brown, too hairy, all of that straight up abuse, emotional abuse. And it's very intense. And I'm so I'm sure it's led to your own issues with your body. And like you said, feeling like it's not yours. And I'm just so sorry. Now, when people abuse other people, there's a lot of reasons behind it. A lot of times like child on child sexual abuse will be done 
more out of curiosity or because it was done to them. And that's just what they think they need to do. It can also be for sexual pleasure. It can also be for punishment. Um, I have uh, quite a few patients over the years that when they would do something wrong, that was the punishment. And they were told that that was why it was happening. Like, well, if you had gotten 100% on that test or if you'd cleaned the kitchen, like you said, or any number of things, then you, I wouldn't have to do this to you. Again, this is why we it leads us down the road of minimizing and invalidating our experience because we're told that we caused it, hence shame being so connected to trauma. And I just want all of you to know that no matter what you ever did in your life, that never makes abuse okay. That never causes it. It's not your fault. You didn't make it happen. An abuser chooses to abuse or the adult in that relationship is the one that's responsible, right? We have to think of this. Just trust me on that and don't let that shame thought get any farther, okay? You didn't do anything to cause it. It's not your fault. Now, that could be why your mom did it. I have a ton of, like I said, a ton of patients over the years who had were sexually abused as punishment. I, I'm not surprised you don't have the memories again. That there can be so many reasons for that. Just the the dissociation, the the age with which things took place, the the overwhelm that our system can feel in general from something like that. Just even repression. We repress memories, and sometimes they can be recalled. Sometimes they can't. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question again. I'm just so sorry if. I'm just so sorry that you had to go through that and that this could have been something that was done as a punishment. There was another add-on says, my memories of sexual abuse are just flashes, feelings, vague images and voices. That's incredibly common. All scattered at best with mostly having body memories as well as complex PTSD and dissociative issues. Yet I don't have a clear memory or storyline, nor a possibility to truly know. When I deny that anything happened, I feel like I'm just pushing away a part of myself. And when I try to accept the sexual abuse in my past, I find it hard to logically allow myself to even go there. What would you recommend? Now, what you're experiencing, the flashes, uh, feelings, vague memories and voices, body memories, that's all incredibly common. Again, because trauma is so jarring to our nervous system, it doesn't really have the time to form and process and file away the memories. And so, you know, that I've talked about this in the past, but it's been a while. The film Inside Out, I loved so much because the way they put together those like memory marbles, remember they like joy, sadness, and they like kind of file them away. Now, the way that they did that, I just, I love the film because it's, it's, fairly accurate for what we know as to how memories are formed and processed. I mean, obviously it's done like a little more cartoony, but I just love the idea. So stick with me for forming a memory and we're making it into a marble. Now imagine that something traumatic happens and our brain like can't stay focused. So it's trying to form this marble and then it just drops it in the midst and it shatters all across that floor in like what I would call you know, kind of our control center of our brain, which is where in Inside Out, they're all in there poking buttons and stuff. It's all scattered on that floor. And then as we go to walk around that control center, we step on little splinters and those splinters give us a flash of a part of that marble memory or an image, or we feel it in our body briefly and it brings us back, but it's just a splinter. So we only get like a second or a clip or a photo or a feeling because it's not fully formed. And that happens, unfortunately, 
all the time when it comes to trauma and especially with trauma memories. I did a ton of research about this when I was writing my second book, Traumatized, and there's a whole chapter just on trauma memories. And just FYI, if anybody out there is like, but some of my memories are coming back. Can I trust them? Yes, research proves that we can. Okay. Now, um, so the question is, no clear memory or storyline. That's also incredibly common because again, these memories were not formed and filed away. They're like splinters. And if we had repetitive traumas, imagine more marbles getting shattered and the timeline can get all hazy and confusing. And we can struggle to remember if it was we were eight or 12 or maybe I was sick. Everything feels like it's swirling because again, they weren't fully formed and able to be filed away. And so the question here is, um, when I deny that anything happened, I feel like I'm just pushing away a part of myself. Okay, so what do I recommend? I think a huge piece of this is going to be to work with a trauma therapist or a trauma-informed therapist. Trauma-informed just really means that they understand trauma. They may not be a specialist in EMDR, somatic experience, or any kind of trauma-based treatments, but they're, I would like consider myself trauma-informed, but not a trauma specialist, Okay work with someone like that. And I even, I talk about this in my book, Traumatized. One of the things that I would encourage you to start off working with, and you could do this on your own, but it is it is better to be done with a therapist. Not only is it like safer and ensured we don't get re-traumatized, but that also ensures that they come back to it and we slowly kind of work on the tra- this trauma timeline. So when we put a trauma timeline together, it's just like it sounds. It's a timeline of our life and we plop in any good memories, bad memories, and we kind of highlight the traumas along the way. And the reason I say good memories, bad memories is not to judge them, but it's because even if we have like a good like, oh my God, I remember when I went to Disneyland, I was so excited as a kid. I know that's not a trauma memory, but that is, if we remember the age that we were, then that good memory can be a reference point for, do you think that happened before or after you went to Disneyland? Hmm. Sometimes that can help us put something on the timeline with more accuracy. So I always do that with my patients where, you know, not only will we mark some of the traumas and intensive experiences, but we'll also mark some of the more positive or or kind of what I'd call like bookmark incidences like, oh, that's when we moved to this house or when my my brother graduated or, you know what I mean? You might have certain things that happen. Oh, when my baby sister was born, there might be certain things we remember and those can be just as helpful when we're putting this together. And so doing that work, spending time to be patient with yourself, it can be hard to do this, but working with your therapist to slowly piece that together can give you not only some more like validity or feeling like how you feel is warranted, but it also allows you to see it. And there's something so powerful about a trauma timeline that I think that that could really help you here because you said that it, you can't deny that anything happened. You feel like you're pushing a part of yourself away, but it's scattered and it feels all over the place. And a timeline kind of helps organize it. It helps us in some ways put things into different buckets of years or uh, experiences. And it, as a therapist, it helps us see if there are any patterns to specific traumas or to the way you reacted to it. There's a lot of helpful information in there. And yes, these take a while to put together. And yes, they're living, breathing documents, meaning that as a memory comes back up, you can plop it in there. And that can kind of help you slowly piece it together. A trauma timeline is something that we work on in therapy for a few sessions, but then it's something we can always return to every so often. 
um, that would be what I would encourage you to start out with because that should help you start to sort and make sense of all that comes up for you, like the scattered, overwhelming flashes, feelings, body memories, all that stuff. Okay? Hang in there. And like I said, I also walk you through this in my book, Traumatized, and you can pick it up at your local library or something like that to make it more cost-effective for you. Okay, uh, there's another add-on. Like I said, there were a lot. I asked myself the same thing. I had a gynecological medical medical condition as a kid. I guess I was five-ish, which required some treatment. Remember that five, that long, long-term memory? I thought that couldn't be the source of my problems because looking back objectively, it wasn't that bad. Look at us minimizing as adults. We forget what it was like to be a kid, right? And as an adult, you know what those exams are and you know what's happening. As a kid, you might not have that understanding. You don't really get a choice. You can feel like, you know, you hate going there and you're forced and you, nobody tells you what's ha- going to happen, right? Just throwing it out there. So you can look back objectively. I don't even know if something like this would qualify as sexual trauma. 100% it could because there's no mistreatment or abuse. It, it's not about what took place. It's about whether or not we felt scared maybe life threatened. It's either emotional or physical safety feels threatened. We are scared for our own safety and therefore we're traumatized. It was overwhelming for our nervous system. We didn't have the resources or the tools to process or manage what was happening. Okay. So um, it wasn't even sexual. Oh yeah. I don't, uh, because there was no mistreatment or abuse and technically it wasn't even sexual, just strictly medical. I just got stuck in my head the wrong way because I was scared. I guess my parents don't know that I remember. So no one talked to me about it. And somehow I can't talk about it because I can't get the words out about this, even to myself when I'm alone. I don't really know what to do, to be honest. I think having some uh, label would help, but I don't know. Yes, that sounds like a sexual trauma. Yes, it was medical, but that, that medical trauma is huge. So many people have traumas like that. Even one of my girlfriends who had a baby and she hemorrhaged afterward, she calls that a medical trauma. She's like, I was so scared I was going to die and she was bleeding and it wouldn't stop. That's scary. It's terrible. It's terrifying. And as a child, that was terrifying to you. I, I know you said it's hard to even get the words out. If writing it is the easiest way for you to start and easy being like, I know it's not easy, but easier than trying to say it to someone. Let's start by journaling about it. And what I encourage you so strongly to do is to not read back these journals, to not care if it is spelled correctly or if it even makes sense. I want you just to get it out of your head. And before you end every session or whatever you want to call like time that you have to journal, every time you end one of those segments or sessions, I want you to then end with a couple sentences validating your experience. I know, you can imagine it coming from me. You can imagine someone else saying it to you, a therapist. I don't care. I just want you to tell yourself something to the effect of, this really hurt. What happened to me was traumatic. I was so scared. And I'm hoping that I can talk about it soon. We just want to be positive, hopeful about us moving through it to a place where we can talk about it. And then I obviously I would encourage you to see a therapist who specializes in trauma or is trauma informed because that's where we'll work 
you know, from there and like the trauma timelines and all the stuff. Cause it sounds like it was around the, you know, the age of five. So you probably have some memories and not all memories, or maybe you have them all. Cause again, trauma can work in both ways where sometimes we won't remember them at all because dissociation or because they were so intense and we were present, we remember every detail. Every person's different. But I just want you to know that that journaling, because you were able to write it here, which I'm so proud of you for being able to ask this question. Let's use that and keep writing, getting it out, validating our experience before we finish, and we'll work from there. Okay, that that's where we're going to start, so we can kind of get you out of this like I can't talk about it. Oh, that over. I don't want to re-traumatize you. So I wanted to slowly work with that, and then there's also the pieces that we could. Um, if you want to seek out a therapist, we can also work on your self-care. Remember the HALT acronym, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Um, there's also one in DBT called ABCs, please. And it's very similar, but it's essentially that kind of basic self-care, to, you know, treating any mental or treating any illness, a physical illness we have, um, taking medication as prescribed, all of that stuff. But we we need to take care of ourselves so that we're increasing our resilience a little bit. And maybe that will allow us to talk about it just for a little brief minute. And then we can go back to, you know, not. But all of that will be helpful. Okay. Now there's another add-on that says, my mom asked me if anything happened to me as a child and particularly with a male cousin that showed me special interest when I was a young child and he was like seven years older. We used to play together away from my siblings and my other cousins. I also could imagine being penetrated, I mean the feelings, but this was years before that I had sex. I don't remember anything happening as a young child, and I always kind of assumed that my imagination was just really good, but is there a chance that I'm wrong? If we don't have any symptoms or signs of PTSD or any kind of trauma symptoms, if we don't have um, any blips of memory or anything like that there's no reason to think that that something happened to you just because your mom was checking maybe something has happened to someone else and she's wanting to make sure it didn't happen to you or if it did to get you support whatever the case if you don't have any signs or symptoms of it then it's most likely it didn't happen but or maybe they just haven't cropped up yet but either way i don't think if we don't have anything I don't want to say this to be minimizing because that's not what I mean. But if we don't have any signs or symptoms of something, we don't, I wouldn't assume that we have it. Do you know what I mean? If I don't have any symptoms of depression, you wouldn't diagnose me with depression. And PTSD or trauma is no different. If we don't have any signs or symptoms of it, I would assume that we weren't traumatized. Now, yes, you could have had a really and crazy imagination or something could have happened. And there's nothing wrong with you, you know, spending some time journaling, exploring that. But I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that just because your mom asked about it, that we definitely have it. You know how you feel. Do you have any of those signs or symptoms? Is it bothering you? You know, if so, then then yeah, then let's talk to someone. Let's start processing it. Let's move through that. Okay. Now there was another add-on. Like I said, there were a ton said, why do I feel both conflicted or why do I feel so conflicted about my trauma? For context, I was sexually abused by my uncle from the ages of six until I was 14. I know consciously it was awful and felt this pain bottled up inside of me for years. When I initially disclosed the abuse about two years ago, I broke down into tears and was inconsolable. But now I rarely cry. I constantly get intrusive memories about the abuse, and I spent ages trying to piece together the whole memory, but nothing comes to me. I know it was awful, but I can't cry. I feel so disconnected from what happened to me. That's protective. Your brain and body are protecting you. 
In fact, I would argue that some days it doesn't even feel real. But on the other hand, some days I want to drown myself in tears because I feel shit about what my uncle did to me. But all that amounts to is just a few tears. It's this internal conflict. I feel that drives me to the brink of unaliving myself some days and I just can't stand it. Worse, all I want to do is tell my therapist about all about this pain that I feel, but I'm too scared she won't believe me and how much pain I feel because I can't show emotion. What the hell do I do? Is this weird paradox even a thing other people experience or am I just that screwed up? What could be this sign or what could this be a sign or symptom of? Okay, you're not that screwed up. What you're experiencing is incredibly common. This numb out, this disconnect happens because the emotions that we feel, like you said, you broke down in tears, you're inconsolable. I would assume that even the coming out about it and talking about it could have been overwhelming to our system, could have caused dissociation. It obviously caused you to be inconsolable and to break down into tears, and it should have, right? That's that's totally reasonable. I'm not judging that uh, emotional expression at all. But what I want to tell you is that that could have been so overwhelming that in order to keep ourselves feeling safer or more, quote unquote, in control, we could have just stuffed all of our emotions down and and numbed out and cut ourselves off. Meaning, and I do that cut ourselves off because like we often cut off our emotions and our experiences and our thoughts about things from our body. So even if we're feeling sad, we show, it's like, I feel sad. There's no, like you said, you can't cry. We don't show any emotion. We're disconnected. And that just essentially protects us from those experiences. It protects us from having to acknowledge and feel what happened again or to get so worked up and upset about it. It it protects us from that. And I know it can sound weird and it might not make sense and, you know, all that stuff, but it's really helpful. You have to give your body, you know, and brain like a little pat on the back that it's helping you get through and not become so overwhelmed that you're traumatized again. It's doing it as a way of self-preservation. Now, is it annoying and probably getting in the way? Hell yeah. And that's where therapy comes in. No therapist is going to not believe you just because you don't cry in the same way that no therapist is going to think you're overreacting if you're inconsolable and burst into tears. We're not there to judge. We're there to meet you where you're at, help you feel seen and heard. And then work with you to improve in the ways that you're wanting to improve. So don't think that tears have to happen for a therapist to take you seriously. I have patients who've done both extremes. I've um, had patients with like horrible trauma in their life growing up and they tell it to me just like they're reading it from a book, completely disconnected, but no emotion whatsoever. Like I don't think I ever saw them cry and I saw them for like a year and a half. Then I have patients who are more like me in therapy where they show up and they cry like every single time, almost immediately. And there's no judgments either way. It's all about where you're at and what you're able to not just access, but process in the moment. Okay. So give yourself some time. It's okay to experience that. Okay. And honestly, it's just a sign or symptom of trauma. Now there was another add-on. I think we have like three more. (laughs) It says also... When sex is a trigger, how do you explain the specific flashbacks and body memories to your partner if you don't remember all of the details? Some types of touch are super triggering for me, but I'm so ashamed to explain it to him that these half memories are just so intense, but at the same time, it's so confusing and incomplete. Okay, I have a great tool for you. I talk about this in my book, Traumatized, as well, and it's from the Courage to Heal workbook. I didn't make it up myself. I I took it from them. 
but they encourage you with the help of your therapist to put together a list of sexual or not even it doesn't even have to be sexual i just call it intimate situations or touch that's okay maybe okay and not okay and take some time with your therapist to put this list together what are things that you and your partner have done that seems fine like oh they can put my their hand on my shoulder or they can kiss me on the cheek that's fine we can kiss that's fine i don't know i'm you know um we can make out and that's okay you know but then penetration's never okay and maybe okay is maybe some fooling around you know You'd have to get specific about what feels okay and not okay and what maybe is okay. And take your time with this because it doesn't matter if we have full memories of what happened to us. It's obviously still affecting us and we're reacting out of it. And we don't want your current sexual relationship to be re-traumatizing. So take the time to put together that those like three columns, you know, things that are okay, things are maybe okay and things that aren't okay. And that's how you can communicate things to your partner. You can say, you know, I'm working on past traumas. And so these things are not okay for me right now. I get overwhelmed and it kind of reminds me of that time. And if they ask more like probing questions and you're not, like you don't have the memory, you don't really want to talk about it that much, it's okay to say so. It's okay to say, you know, the memory's so like flashy because it was so scary for me. I don't even remember it all the way. I just associate that kind of touch with it. Or you can just say, you know, I don't really want to talk about it. It's a little too overwhelming. It's your story to share or not share. No one says we have to tell them everything. But a conversation around what's okay and not okay can ensure that your intimate situations and experiences with them are healing instead of hurtful. Okay, so take the time to put that together. That can really, really help. Another add-on says, I basically have the same issue, but I've had flashbacks and intrusive memories of sexual abuse from a parent. I find it difficult to believe that this is true since I have no quote-unquote normal recollection of the event. I haven't been able to talk about this in therapy for several reasons. Fear, one, number one, fear of not being believed. Number two, feeling overwhelmed when thinking about it. Three, feeling shameful and disgusting due to it. Um, I fear men, intimacy, touch, and am easily startled, and I struggle to shower at all. How can I get to a place where I can talk about this in therapy? And how can I figure out what happened? Also, how do I move on from this? Okay, I think kind of a combination. I feel like I've answered this one already. I'll give you kind of a rundown. Part of this is going to be what we talked about at the beginning, like having, you know, using the right terminology, checking our facts and challenging those negative beliefs we have about it. That's going to be key for you because you find it difficult to believe it's true. So we have to work on that piece first because I think there's probably some, you know, minimization, invalidation, and shit talking that's going on. There's that. Then I think, you know, um, we could do some of that journaling. Remember the person who said that they like to say it out loud. It's like, oh, well, you wrote it here. So let's start with that. Let's start writing what we can. It doesn't have to be about that trauma, but it can be about how we're experiencing it and what we're feeling. And maybe some of the flashes that we do remember or the things that we, you know, these intrusive memories, what are they like? I don't know. If you can write about them, let's start there because we have to get more comfortable with those experiences. And I don't even want to say more comfortable, I guess it's like more comfortable communicating about it in a different way, right? We're just writing, we're not sharing this with anybody. And we need to, I think 
doing that in tandem with the, you know, checking the facts, using the right terms and challenging those thoughts. I think that that will get us to a place, hopefully, where then we can talk in therapy. But we're going to have to build up till then, right? Because we've had a really rough past. We've never processed it. We don't feel able. We don't have full memories. We have these like flashbacks, intrusive memories. And so it feels overwhelming. And it's just going to take us some time to get there. Be patient with yourself. But try to journal at least three to four times a week, even if it's just for five to 10 minutes, just jotting down, you know, what's coming up. If you're having a really rough time, I encourage you to journal about that and to help yourself, you know, get it out so that we don't feel like it's just spinning in our head. There's something very cathartic and healing about writing something out. Um, You can type it too. I find uh, journaling by hand to be a little bit better, but whatever, however it works for you, do that. And I believe that that will help. And it's just slowly building up and working towards that. Okay. Now, final add-on says, can you explain the signs? I thought they that I knew them, but they seem to come. I thought I knew them, but more seem to come up. That's what I missed. Can hypersensitivity or hating to be touched in any way after orgasm be one? Of course. So signs that I would look for when it comes to childhood sexual abuse if I'm seeing an adult, let's just say, um, would be a, a couple of things, okay? Difficulty with touch, touch being super triggering, uh, dissociating during sex or being really fearful of sex. Could even be that they, when they remember when they were like a teen wetting the bed or something after being potty trained, if there was any wetting the bed after potty training happened, that's another indicator of childhood sexual abuse. Um, difficulty letting people get too close or wanting people really close, kind of that like attachment issue. I'm always very curious about that. I'm not saying that on its own is a sign, but it's kind of a piece of a puzzle that I would want to get to know more about. Um, Having any kind of what I would call odd rituals. This isn't a judgment, it's just kind of out of the norm rituals around sex. Like the person said, like, you know, not wanting to be touched after an orgasm. I've had patients who feel like they really need a shower, but they like scrub themselves really intensely after having sex. Um, Even people, some of my patients who are really hypersexualized, who will engage in what I would call risky sexual behavior. That's always another indicator, something I want to explore. And when I talk about these signs, these are potential signs and symptoms and things that as a therapist, they're like little flags and I want to explore them to to see if they do attach. It's not, yes, they definitely are 100%. These are things that we kind of look out for. So um, yeah, those are just kind of, hopefully that helps. I'm sure I'm missing some, but there, there can also be, I mean, I have other signs because I specialize in the treatment of eating disorders. A lot of my patients with eating disorders have sexual abuse and it's usually... I'll find out by trying to get to the root of why their eating disorder exists. And they say something like, well, me uh, not eating kept, it made it so I wasn't attractive to people. It kept me from looking like a woman. Like a lot of my patients who restrict will not want to look like they've gone through puberty. Or there's going to be something about like wanting to gain weight so that you're not attractive to that person either to keep people away. I've had patients who didn't like to shower, like hygiene can be another indicator, and that can be to keep people away, right? We can do different things as a as a means of protection from the trauma happening again, right? So those are just some of the signs. Honestly, if you have any kind of hangups around 
sex and touch and intimacy overall, I think that's worth exploring in therapy because it comes from somewhere, right? Could come from like I grew up in church in like purity culture in the 90s and that could mess up and it did when I was younger it messed up like my relationship with my body and sex and being able to have intimate relationships and feeling like it wasn't gonna send me to hell right so there's that kind of stuff there's also you know if you've had sexual abuse there's gonna be some different things it's it's worth looking into to at least identify where intimacy and sexual behaviors are affected in your life or where you feel like you can't engage in what you'd assume is a quote-unquote normal way and it's worth exploring to make sure that, you know, whatever issues there that we can work to heal it. So I hope that kind of makes sense. I hope I, I'm sh- like I said, I'm sure I missed some signs and symptoms, but those are just the ones that, that came to my mind that I jotted down after I read this question and that I look out for in my patients. Okay. There can also like addiction and self-injury, just like I said, with eating disorders, those are all coping skills for something greater. So when any patient of mine is struggling with something like that, I always look into you know, ask some questions about past just to see. Okay, that was question number one. So let's move on to question number two. Like I said, it was a doozy. Okay, question number two says, how do you handle parents with a mental illness? It says, hey, Katie, and happy Thursday. I struggle a lot with my mom being so emotional and irrational. Her mood swings are like a roller coaster, and it's really uncomfortable being around her. She has so many BPD traits, although being undiagnosed. My dad is addicted to alcohol and drugs and is also really a really unpredictable person to be around. I love them both and I know that they don't do anything to hurt me, but it's so hard to be around them while trying to heal from childhood trauma. I don't want to cut them off though. Is it possible to have healthy boundaries with parents with serious mental health issues? And is it possible to heal even if you're still in contact with them? Thank you for everything you do. You seriously make the world a better place. All. I'm so glad I could be here. Now, this is a great question because obviously n- not all of us want to cut our parents off, even if they are abusive, even if what they're doing is still harmful, because I do have to give a little pushback to the person who asked this question because you said, I know that they don't do anything to hurt me. They do. Your dad being an addicted to alcohol and drugs makes him unpredictable, means that he could get really angry. That's emotional abuse. Could I don't know if he's hit you or done anything like that, but that could be a part of it. At the very least, there's neglect there because if a parent is drunk or high, they can't participate in your life in a real way. They can't be there for you because they, they're they not even there for themselves, right? And your mom with her BPD traits, even though she's undiagnosed, she's I don't know if she's getting help. I would encourage her to get help. But if she feels so volatile all the time, that means that she probably is. And BPD untreated can be very emotionally abusive as well as physically abusive sometimes. Um, And so it can be really painful to be around also, okay? Keeping that all in mind, the work is going to be on your side of the table because we can encourage them to get help and get support, but we can't change them, right? We can't make people do anything. We can only change ourselves. And so you're going to have to do some internal work to figure out a couple of things, okay? First order of business is to consider what you wish the relationship was like. And you can do mom and dad separate or together, whatever feels best for you or most manageable. What if I dreamed a dream? What do I wish the relationship looked like? Tell me all about it. What would that entail? And then maybe on a separate day or in the same day, it's fine. 
Tell me what they're capable of because those lists are not the same. And then a huge piece for you is going to be grieving that difference in therapy. Does it suck? Yes. Does almost everybody have to do that with their parents at some point? Yes. As we get older, we realize even if our parents don't have, you know, mental illnesses or severe issues, we realize that they're people too and that they're fallible, right? When we grow up, we can think our parents know everything and they're the best and blah, blah, blah. And then we slowly realize that they're human and we have to grieve that. And it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to give yourself an opportunity to uh, get out all of that maybe disappointment and hurt. Let yourself have that time, okay? So that's going to be one piece. A second piece is going to be figuring out what the relationship can look like for you to still participate with them and also feel safe or okay. And that means what are the boundaries that we will have to set up and abide by? Is that that we only call them once a week and for 30 minutes? Is it that we call them once a day and we only talk for 10 and we just check in? Is it that we, when we visit, we only stay for two hours or I don't know, I'm throwing out random things, but it can look anything like this. I see them once a year. I see them once a week. Any, what's the, what can you handle? What amount of contact and conversation and connection do you feel is beneficial to you? Again, I know you might say, well, they want to see me every, I'm not asking you about them. I'm asking you about you. And every time, you know, you find yourself being like, but they would want, imagine my voice saying, I don't care. It's not about them. I know you love them. That's the important piece, but I'm wondering how you feel. I want you to try to make some decisions for you so that we can continue this relationship because the goal is for it not to be any more harmful or abusive or neglectful or anything like that. We want it to be healthy for you. And so you have to do what's best for you and to think about that. And we have to be really intentional about the time that we spend with them and what we're, you know, what we're doing and not doing and, and how much of that time and what do we share about our life, all of those things. Because even if they ask for, well, I want to see you and you, you only come around once a week now, you can be like, I told you, mama, it's, it's hard for me and I am very busy with work and that's the time that I have. I look forward to seeing you on Sunday and thank you for understanding. You know, we I know it's going to be hard, but we have to figure out what works for us, not for them, for us, because that will ensure that we can stay in contact with them and that the relationship can be as good as it's going to be. Would I say that you can have a healthy relationship? Yes, because you have healthy boundaries in place and you're you're following them because boundaries keep us both safe in relationships, right? And even though the relationship isn't ideal, that doesn't mean it can't be healthy, okay? Okay. Let's move on to question number three. So question says, Katie, I'm 16. And is it bad that in therapy, I can't talk about anything? I have to write it down and then hand it to him. That's fine. It takes some of us some time to say things out loud. It can be really hard. Also, my mom wants to talk to me about things, but I can't because she shares it with my dad and then he gets mad at me. I try to tell her this, but it never works. Thank you so much for everything. Okay. First of all, kudos to starting therapy early. I really think that saved my bacon as a kid because I started at 15, so almost your age. Changed my life and I'm so grateful. So yay. Now, the fact that you can't talk about anything, that's not bad. Don't judge yourself. You're doing the best you can. 
at least you found a way to communicate. The writing it down and sharing is beautiful. I love that you're using your resources and you're working through it. Now, the goal will be to get you to a point where you can say it out loud, but you might have to start that on your own. I mean, you're 16, so I don't know where you live. If you're in the States, you might drive a car or you might have the ability to do that. Anywhere you can be in a private place, like like in your car on a road by yourself, or if you need to go to a park, Uh, or you need to go, I don't know, into the basement of your house, somewhere where people won't hear you and you can start trying to read out some of your journal entries out loud. That's a good place to start because there's something so, I don't know, overwhelming about feeling the words come across our lips for the first time. It's like, we can freeze up, we can dissociate, we can get overwhelmed. So practicing doing it by yourself gives you an opportunity to take a break, maybe use some skills, pull ourselves back to current until we're, and you know, we can do that over and over and over and practice, practice, practice until we feel like we're able to do that in therapy. But be patient. There's nothing wrong with you writing it down. I'm glad that you're doing that. That totally works. Okay. So there's that. The thing with your mom sharing stuff with your dad, All you said you've tried to tell her this. When she asks and she wants you to talk about things, you can say, mom, I'd love to talk to you about it. But when you tell dad, then he gets mad at me. I know you may have already said this, but if you haven't said it fully, express it. Say, I I don't want to talk to you about it, mom, because you're going to tell dad and then he'll get mad at me. And then I feel worse. Say, I love you and I'd love to talk to you about it. But that's what happens. Now she can choose to not tell your, now I know in relationships like Sean and I, we don't have secrets from each other. It's just a part of a healthy relationship. But in this case, I think it's fair for her to hold your confidence if she wants to be part of the process. Now, if she can't, then you don't have to include her. And I know it can feel bad to like not include a parent, especially if we love our mom and we want that connection. All we can do is tell her our boundary. Like you can't tell dad everything I tell you. Then I I don't want to tell you anything because then he gets mad, you know? Or maybe she can have a conversation with your dad where she's like, stop getting mad. You're ruining it, you know, because that if if your dad didn't get mad at you, then there'd be no problem, right? So communicate this to her and then you get to decide. I do like the, if, I do like the idea of you having someone to talk to. Um, so if you have a close friend or even if it's just in therapy, that's fine too. But I do want you to have another outlet. So look for that and maybe it can be your mom, but maybe it can't. And I... I understand both sides. I can understand if she wants to tell her husband, but your dad has to get his shit together. He can't get mad about things like that. You know, you're working on it. He needs to be supportive and can check himself a little bit. Um, But if your mom, you know, can hold your confidence and keep a secret, then you can keep talking to her. But that's kind of the boundary. That's the rule that you have because otherwise it's, it's not beneficial. Um, But it's not bad that you can't talk in therapy. Be patient with yourself. You'll get there. Okay, moving on to question number four. And this question says, hi, Katie. I know suicide is never the answer, but what if I genuinely am a burden and would be doing everyone a favor? This sounds like a lot of judgment and a lot of personal shit talking, and that's not really helpful. Unfortunately, you maybe believe that you're a burden because maybe you had an abusive parent who told you that, but I'm here to tell you that you're not. And I know life is hard and I know it's uncomfortable and I know that suicidal thoughts and deep depression can take away our hope and make us feel like it's always going to be like this. But I can tell you with certainty that it's not always going to be like this. It can get better. And you not being on this earth doesn't do anybody a favor. 
You're here for a reason. There's a purpose. I don't care if you believe in God or not. I'm not religious. You guys know that. But I do believe in the fact that we were all put here for a reason. That reason could be something um, as simple as being supportive of a friend when they really needed it. That reason could be that you're able to teach a certain person about something that changes the world. We don't I don't think we ever fully acknowledge and understand the ripple effects of our life. There are so many things that you are here to affect and people's lives you're going to change. You're not a burden. You're part of this crazy, wild, and sometimes very toxic world that we're all in. And just because you're going through a hard time and things are feeling really bad does not mean you're a burden. And it doesn't mean we'd be better off without you. I don't believe that. If we would have been better off without you, you wouldn't be here in the first place. Now, suicide, I know, is a, is a tricky subject, and I agree with you that it's never the answer, but I also understand people who feel so bad, so deep, dark, out of ideas, hopeless, helpless, that it seems like the only answer. But just trust me when I tell you, if you're out there and you're having thoughts like that, I hear you, I see you, but you're important and you're valuable, and this will pass. Reach out, speak up, talk to somebody about this so that you're reminded that there's more in the world than just you. It sounds, I am not saying that to be a judgment. I'm saying that when we get so in our own head, when we feel so down, so hopeless, so helpless, it can be really hard for us to see anybody else out in our world or think about anything else other than our own experience because it's so intense. And reaching out and talking to someone else, seeking that support can be a small reminder of that. So please reach out, okay? Now, there was a comment on this that I have one to add. Will EMDR take help take away any suicidal thoughts? Good question. I'm 44 and I've struggled my whole life with feeling unwanted. I am an addict and I almost just want to OD to get it over with. At the same time, I'm fighting those thoughts because I have a grandson on the way. Plus, I lost my job of five years, so I haven't had anything to keep my mind busy. My therapist wanted me to start EMDR a couple of weeks ago, but I chickened out because I'm nervous that I'll break down something I prefer to do in private. So just curious. Also, I go the 11th for egg testing um, and an MRI on my brain. Oh, EEG testing. Sorry, I read that as egg. <laughs> EEG testing and MRI on the brain. Do you know if that will show up any of my mental health issues? No, since I'm technically having it done for dizzy spells that I have. Therapy has me feeling stupid, so not sure how much longer I'll continue with that, even though I really like my therapist. I struggle talking about me. I told her a lot in emails, but I think I've told her too much. I'd argue that's not really possible. The more we share, the more information they have and the better equipped they are to help us. I don't know. Any advice would just be greatly appreciated. I'm new on here. And I've also noticed the past couple of weeks now, I've been whispering to myself when I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about talking in therapy. Oh, good. Is that a sign I'm going crazy? No, haven't brought it up to my therapist just yet. Thanks. Okay. So will EMDR take away any suicidal thoughts? Not necessarily right away. I'm in EMDR myself currently, and the goal of EMDR is to give your brain another chance to process or reprocess past traumatizing or upsetting events, okay? We do that, and in that, as we've processed those emotions, and there's no more emotional charge attached to it. Like, for example, let's say I'm talking, because I'm in EMDR for grief primarily, um, and when I think about my papa and my grandma and missing them, I just cry. 
And EMDR, the goal is to get me to a point where I can talk about it. And it just, I feel like if I want to cry, I can, but I don't have to. It's not so charged that I like can't control it. Cause that's been my issue is I just feel like my emotions are out of control with it. It's like too overwhelming, right? And so EMDR by processing through some of your painful past memories could then as a result, remove those suicidal thoughts. But that's not from my understanding, that's not how that works. It's not a direct correlation. Like EMDR stops suicidal thoughts. But in the the min, like the processing and the minimization of our emotional reactivity, you'll feel better. And I assume those suicidal thoughts will get less and less and less. Okay. Now, getting an EEG or an MRI is not going to show, they're not going to be looking for your mental health issues. I do know that there are brain scans and different types of tests. I think it's a fMRI that we can get done that can show different areas of our brain that are more active or less active and that can show depression or things like that. But that's not what they're doing. So I wouldn't worry about that at all. Okay. And the fact that you feel kind of stupid in therapy I don't know if you feel comfortable, but I would let your therapist know because you said you like them. Then I believe that you should feel accepted and seen and, and heard and, and not like you're doing it wrong or you don't understand. Like that's not the goal of therapy. The goal of therapy is to to work together. And if there's something you don't understand to help educate you so you feel like we're all on the same page and we're moving towards the same things together. That's really the goal. So let them know. And I love that you're emailing. That's a great way to get that information out. There's nothing wrong with that. And talking about things out loud to yourself is actually a tool that I have my patients use. Like I said, to get used to hearing those words come out their mouth, it can be really, really beneficial. So it doesn't, it's not a sign you're going crazy. My guess would be you're just preparing and practicing and getting yourself ready to go to therapy. But notice, I mean, if you feel like you're talking to someone, that's different. But just we all talk to ourselves, whether it's like just to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Like just a mumble to ourselves or whether we're, you know, saying something like before I if I'm having a difficult conversation with someone or I'm preparing for a difficult conversation, I say it out loud to myself. I want to hear how it sounds first. And that's okay to do that. Nothing wrong with it. Okay. Moving on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, this may be a bit taboo, but I don't see many people covering this. And it's something that's been bothering me for a really long time. How would someone best deal with mental health problems brought on from kink shaming or fetish stigma? Shaming or ridiculing someone for their kinks is unfortunately common and socially accepted, but there's no information on how it can negatively affect someone's mental health. Agreed. And if so, how could someone deal with or how someone would deal with this? For me personally, I have a foot fetish and even me saying that makes me feel uncomfortable because of the stigma attached to that. The stigma and shame from society has made me feel depressed and has had a negative impact on my mental health. I have never even told anyone who knows me nor done anything with another person, but I know I have it and the kink shaming that I see from other people has been hurtful and upsetting. How should I deal with this? My, a couple of things. My first word of advice is to find a community where kinks are more acceptable and more openly expressed and talked about. I don't know where you live, but I know especially like in bigger cities like New York or LA, there are different like clubs you can be part of if you're into like S&M stuff. Or if you have certain kinks, you can find people who also have certain kinks. There's I don't know if there are like dating apps specific for this, but I would go searching for it. Because there's nothing wrong. Everybody has different things that turn them on. Some just happen to be more common and others not. I would argue 
that a kink or a fetish is really just someone having like out of the the mean or the median of what other people like. It's just something a little different, it's like a deviation. Now, I am always curious with with you. I don't I don't know, but I'm just I have to say it in case someone else has a fetish and, or a kink and they're afraid to talk about it. But I've had tons of patients who want to wear the opposite, you know, uh, gender's underwear or they want to dress up in a certain way or not. They like role play. There's furries. There's all sorts of things out there. I personally have only had two patients who've had some kind of kink, call it a kink. And I always want to uh, first just validate and acknowledge and try to normalize the experience because everybody has different things that turn them on. But then I also want to question about where it came from to ensure that it doesn't have any like sexual abuse connection. And that's just me doing my job as a therapist. So I don't, I'm hopeful that if this has happened to you and you had a therapist like want to explore that you didn't see it as judgment because that's not what it is. It's more just ensuring that it comes from a healthy place of sexual curiosity and you being you and getting to enjoy that in your intimate relationships or, you know, in whatever way you want. Now, that would be, I think those are my biggest like tips is to make sure that it's not coming from an unhealthy place. And I'm any, like we talked about before, any kind of bizarre rituals around sex or something that's kind of out of the quote unquote norm is worth exploring just to be safe. And then find your community. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of people, let's be honest, everybody's different, right? I'll speak personally that I am struggling to make friends. I know this isn't kink or fetish related, but just hang with me for a second. I am struggling to make friends and find like my people in my new area because I'm very much like a beach Southern California type of girl I'm learning. And there's a lot to that and a lot that makes me feel like I belong. And so it's important for me to find my people here so that I can stay here and enjoy my life here. And I don't think that's any different from you finding your people. We should never be part of any communities where we feel like we're not accepted. Like for instance, I grew up in a super, super small town. Now I don't live there. I would never move back because those aren't my people. I know you could be like, well, Katie, you're born and raised there and your family's there. I love my family. I don't have anything in common with the people that I grew up with who are still living there. Those aren't my people. Does that mean their life is wrong and my life is right? Absolutely not. That means that they can enjoy their life in the way that they want and I can enjoy my life in the way that I want. And that's, I think that really applies here. Just because other people don't understand it doesn't mean that there's some, or yeah, it doesn't mean that something's wrong with it. And I would encourage you, if you see, you know, kink shaming fetish stigma, unfollow those people, mute those conversations and engage with a community that fits, that is yours, where you feel like you belong because we all strive for that. And that's, there's nothing weird about that. And foot fetishes are incredibly common. The most common ones I've seen are, um, the wanting to play dress up in some kind of way. Role play is incredible. I'm, you know, that could be a kink foot fetishes. Um, there's even like the the S&M stuff is incredibly common, wanting to be like dominant or be dominated, incredibly common. Now, all those things, it's fine for people to participate in those as long as it's consensual and you're both adults, good. Find other people who get you, who you feel like you belong with, okay? And I'm sorry you're seeing, you know, kind of shit talking. Unfortunately, people like to shit talk things they don't understand. 
Now, there's a comment that says, as an add-on, could you please talk about the frustration that comes up when BPD as a diagnosis is represented completely wrong by society? For example, I just started watching SWAT on Netflix. For anyone who's interested, I'm talking about season one, episode 18, exactly 14 minutes and 50 seconds in to 15 minutes and 10 seconds. Two SWAT officers are talking about a male suspect of crime. The captain tells them that this therapist said he would be bipolar, emotionless, and angry. What? Thereupon, one of the officers says it sounds like a borderline syndrome. What? That's not even proper language or terminology. And that it would explain the anger. The other officer says that a person without empathy can't build up relationships. This is so wrong. Again, it strengthens the misbelief in our society that people who suffer from BPD have no empathy at all. That's the opposite of it, actually. It's so wrong. And are dangerous for others. Like in this case, a potential murder. I'm so frustrated and hurt by statements like this, especially since I struggle with quiet BPD myself. And none of the things mentioned fit me. I know it's completely... Ugh. I'm a very empathic person. Rather too much than too little. Agreed. That's why I was like, it's almost the opposite. I... I wish I could say, oh, we let's shut them down and cancel them. And that, you know, that unfortunately we can't control other people and people are ignorant and some people are stupid and refuse to be educated about things that they are broadcasting to the world. And many shows do have someone like myself or other psychologists on their writing staff to ensure it's correct. But unfortunately, that usually goes for certain shows or films that are specific to mental illness and talk about it in depth. Things like SWAT, you know, and I've seen, I watch a lot of crime too. Sometimes I see things properly show, like uh, Rizzoli and Isles does a pretty good job. I want to, I don't think I saw any in any of their seasons that was, you know, misinformation, but they don't all do that. And they don't, and there can be things like this where you're like that. And that's not even the right terminology. The whole thing bothers me too. Bipolar, emotionless, and angry. What in the Anyway, very frustrating. Since we can't control other people, we can only control ourselves. My best advice is to not watch. When you see something like that, stop watching that show. We don't want to support it with our views, even if we like it normally. We don't want to support it with our views. And we want to spend time with people who get us. Now, we can go online and educate. That's been my goal is I know there's a ton of misinformation out there. It's my goal to educate people, but even I've made missteps over the years. Nobody's perfect, right? And like even cut downs of videos people have assumed were supposed to be offensive or something. I'm like, no, it's part of a greater video. Like it's not even, and it was my fault because I didn't didn't see it that way. I didn't catch it, right? But we don't have to give people those, our views. We don't have to continue watching. We can make a TikTok talking about this, how inappropriate this is, why we don't like it. But I am always very cautious, especially if something, if we find something really disturbing and upsetting to us and triggering, then I don't really want you spending any more time with it. I'd be just like, move on, do some of our skills, like our DBT skills, or reach out to supports or your therapist to, you know, help you manage, and then just leave it in the past. Because sometimes if we focus too much on something, even if it's like to cancel them or to, to shout down, to say this is wrong, to like put real information out there, even though that's all fine and dandy, in the in the act of doing so can be more distressing to us. And sometimes it's just not worth it. You know, it's like when people shit talk about me online, I'm not going to argue back against them because that's going to be more energy out for me and more distressing for me. And sure, I'd like people to know like, hey, this is my side of the story, but sometimes it's just not worth it. You know, the effort and the emotional strain that it's going to take. 
isn't going to make it better. And so what I do choose to do is just mute and block and whatever and move on. And I'd encourage you to do the same. And yes, I know it sucks. I wish I had a better answer, but we can't control other people. All we can do is we can leave a comment. We can talk about it if we want to, or we can decide to watch other stuff instead. So we don't give them our view. We watch something else, you know, um, but hopefully things will continue to get better. I have faith that we're becoming more informed and you know, accurately educated about mental health. And hopefully we'll see that, you know, in media more and more too. Okay. Moving on to question number six, this question says, Hey Katie, how do I cope with the feeling of falling behind others because of my illnesses? Trauma, PTSD, and physical pain illnesses have been taken, have taken so much from me, especially from my time in the last years. I'm still deep in the suffering and trying to heal process, but I recognize two new feelings that are making the healing process even more difficult grief and pressure. Grief over the lost years and the pressure to be finally healthy so I could start life. Do you have any thoughts that could help? And do I need to be fully recovered from everything to start life? Absolutely not. Do I have to allow myself a real break in order to give my soul and body the time to heal? Or is it better to go to therapy, etc. while studying, working, starting a family, and it's going to be fixed along the way over time? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you so much for everything you do by sharing such helpful information. Of course. Okay. Lots to unpack here. My favorite quote is comparison is the thief of joy. And that's what's happening here is you're looking out at other people and being like, I am so far behind. Far behind from what? From who? Who says that we have to, you know, get married by 30 and have babies by 40 and that's all we're going to do. And then we have to buy a home and we need to move here. And we build. who says? Who says we have to know our career by the time we're 18 and go into college and get the right major? Who says we have to go to college? Who's, you know, all of these like societal pressures and timelines, like quote unquote timelines are so toxic and so unhelpful. And then for those of us who lie outside of that, we think like something's wrong with us, right? And nothing's wrong with you. You're doing your best. You're managing a lot. How about give yourself a little pat on the back for managing all of these illnesses. And I'm so sorry you're going through it. We cannot compare our life to someone else because they're so vastly different. So maybe next time you catch yourself trying to do this, I want you to challenge those thoughts with some facts. Well, you know what? If I hadn't, you know, had all this trauma, then it wouldn't have been so hard for me to be in a relationship. Maybe, maybe then I could have been okay with physical touch. I'm just making this stuff up, by the way. And I could have had a girlfriend or boyfriend or person, a partner in life um, by now. Maybe that would have worked, but I don't, you know, and I know that might not even be like the way you want to go with it, but that's one way you can just like give yourself a little validation. And I know it doesn't sound super positive. That's kind of by design so that it's more believable, right? Maybe I could have been that way if I didn't have this, but I did challenge those thoughts. Don't allow yourself to say like, I'm so behind. You know, I feel all this pressure. I feel this grief. The grief is very real. And I encourage you to allow space for that because the fact that you feel like you've missed out on certain things or you're, you're, you could even just grieve the life that you thought you would have before you had these illnesses, right? That's okay. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. And the longer we start to like, like stuff that down and push it, back, the the worse we'll feel and the longer we'll feel worse, you know? And so it's okay to allow for the grief for the lost years. I'd encourage that, to be honest, in journaling about that, talking about that in therapy. But 
you're right on time for your life. I know we can feel like things have to happen by somebody else's timeline, but your timeline is running right on schedule and you're doing the best you can. And I'm proud of you for getting support and reaching out and working to recover. Now, for your other question about like, um, do you need to be fully recovered from everything to start life? Not at all. Nope, not even a little bit. You get to start your life and have your life and live your life now. In fact, yesterday, okay? Nobody says you have to be fully recovered to do anything. You have to be working on yourself. We all do. So that we can be a better version tomorrow than we were today. So that our relationships can improve. We can break out of these old patterns and become better versions. Yes, but I'm still living my life and I want you to do that too. Now, you said, do you allow yourself a real break in order to give your soul and body time to heal? You can, if you feel like you need that. I'm not here to tell you that you you don't deserve that or don't need it. If you feel like you need that time, that is completely fine. And I would understand it, right? Sometimes it feels like life throws so much at us. We can just be in like a constant state of stress or overwhelm. And so at, we almost need like some come down time. If you think you need that, give it to yourself. Again, no judgments. You're right on time. You don't need to speed up or hurry along or get recovered faster. You're doing just fine. And then um, is it better to go to therapy while studying working? I mean, I think going to therapy is always good. I think it's always a good choice. When you're studying and working, starting a family, I think that getting extra support while you manage your illnesses, I don't, there might even be some medical trauma in there. I think there's probably a lot to unpack. I think getting into therapy and you know, doing whatever it is that you want to do within reason, as long as you still feel like you can work on yourself and do the things. Don't feel like you have to do it all. Again, you're not behind schedule. You're right on time. So I think it is good to continue going to therapy and getting that support. And those are really my thoughts. Unfortunately, comparison creeps in and tries to ruin things for us when you're right on time. You're doing everything you're supposed to do. And we're all dealing with a different, you know, not to make it like a card reference or anything, but like We've all been dealt a different hand of cards and we're doing our best with what we've got. So our timelines are totally different, right? Like I grew up with friends who got married at like 19 or 20, had kids, bought a home. And here I am at 30, so I'm 39 now. So I guess at 37, Sean and I were finally able to buy a home. We've been saving forever, living in LA, could never have afforded a home. But, you know, I I remember thinking for a while, I was like, we're still in an apartment and like, I'm so behind. And I was like, no, you're not. I want to live here. I'm choosing this. This is okay with me. Now, I want you to do that version for yourself. Like, I'm dealing with a lot. Do I even really want that life and that timeline? Does that actually line up with what I feel ready to do? No. Like, you know, for me, like, I don't want kids. I didn't want to move out of a city. Even where we live is a little rural for me. I told Sean, I'd like to get closer. You know, if we could afford it, we can't, but we'll get there. And, you know, like, think about it. Do you really want that? Often we don't, we just feel like we should. And it should happen at the certain time. We just should all over our experiences. We can't enjoy anything. So check in if you even really want those things and that timeline, okay? Final question, question number seven says, hi, Katie, I was just curious about how your role as a therapist relates to your family. (laughs) Does your husband or do other family members ever say things or do things that are red flags to you as a therapist all the time? They do. Do you bring it to their attention and offer advice from a therapist's view? No. Do family members come to you for advice when they have a problem? Yes. Okay. So I very much try to have 
clear boundaries around me not being a therapist to anybody else. Even like my mom had asked me about something and I was like, you got to talk to your therapist because like I could tell you, but I'm your daughter and that's really my primary role. And she got it and she never asked again, actually, now that I think of it. But people say things all the time that are red flags. And I will call people out because it's unhealthy relationship behavior. Like um, even one of my friends, she'd said something like, well, I would just assume that. And I was like, stop assuming. Ask first. Why are you jumping to conclusions? Now, that's part me, but that's also part therapist me. The thing that's kind of funny that I think people online don't really know about me is that in my personal life, I'm way, way, way more tough love direct. Like, I'm sure all my friends are like, yes. Like, I will just tell it to you straight. And I think that people in my life, you know, I've always kind of just been like, people either love me or hate me and that's fine. I mean, it's not, you guys know I'm recovering people pleaser, but that's what I tell myself, it's fine. But I am in my relationships, you know, direct. Like, I'm honest. And if you're doing something that I think is hurtful, I'd be like, is that really helpful? That seems kind of, that doesn't seem very healthy, you know? But I don't get too into therapisty talk. I don't ask a question. I, I can't put that hat on. It's exhausting to be a therapist all the time. I mostly am just, you know, a wife, a daughter, a friend. And I just, you know, I obviously cannot help the fact that I have like therapeutic or psychological knowledge. And I, it's, it's in my life. It's everywhere, right? It's like palpable, but I don't have to utilize it in that way. And I just choose not to. But I will call people out when they're doing things I don't think are healthy and be like, well, you know, again, you have to communicate or, well, you said that that was kind of hurtful, you know, like I'll be honest about stuff like that. But um, and I do find my family members come to me for like to help solve a problem that we're having within the family. Um, But I'm usually part of that. So I'm already like not in therapist mode. It's more like I usually just listen, offer my thoughts on it, just like anybody else. So I do think it's really unhealthy for any therapist to be a therapist all the time. I'm not perfect. I don't expect people in my life to be perfect, but I can't help the fact that I do have some knowledge and that's probably the only way it kind of weasels its way in. Um, Yeah. And sometimes I'll just like, I can't help but say something because I see it going wrong or I see it being hurtful. And yeah, you know, I'm I'm curious and I can't help that, but I, I really don't wear my therapist hat in my relationships. It, I think that would be really unhealthy. You know, nobody wants to have someone questioning their every thought and move all the time. And and I want them to know me too, right? In therapy, right? The therapist doesn't share anything about themselves. And so if I'm really in that role, then I'm not even getting to participate in my relationships in a real way. So it is something that I feel like new therapists have to figure out how to navigate themselves. And it is an important boundary to hold so that we don't burn out. Because again, like I said, it's super exhausting to wear a therapist hat all the time. So you need to you need to be a regular person and act in ways that maybe aren't appropriate and be silly and stupid with your friends and not be like adult and like thinking about things and, you know, hmm. like that's too much. It's exhausting. So yes, it's been something I've, I guess, navigated and managed over the years and that's how I deal with it today. So I hope that was helpful. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for being part of the community. Thank you for all the kind words. I'm trying to do a better job of like allowing myself to absorb that. So thank you for all the sweet comments. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.